So for the next uh, 13 Sundays or so, we're going to be preaching and teaching through 1 Peter, and you'll have the opportunity to hear from a number of different men in the church during that time. Uh, Roman uh, is up next week, I think, and then Paul Fu, Jim Zervis, David Sellens, and a few others will be unpacking the word for us. Should be a fruitful summer, uh, just because of um, 1 Peter being very rich in theology and practical application. Uh, it applies to all of us, just because of the nature of Paul's letter, Peter's letter, sorry, and its original purpose. And I expect that it will help all of us to develop a deeper theology of suffering and serve to prepare us for whatever the Lord uh, is going to take us through or allow into our lives. Because, you know, if you've been alive for more than just a few years, you have probably already experienced some form of suffering. And if you haven't yet, you will. Some point in the future, you will suffer as a believer. Believers are promised that if we are following Christ, suffering will come, most certainly in the form of persecution, uh, just as it did for him. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. And Philippians 1.12 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So not only are we promised uh, that there will be suffering through persecution for those that follow Christ, but there will be suffering uh, simply as a result of living in a fallen and sin-cursed world, a world where everything and everyone has been negatively impacted by the consequences of sin, the damaging and destructive consequences of sin. Job 5.7 uh, pretty much sums that up. He says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So you can be sure that trouble, adversity, suffering is sure to come your way at some point. There's no promise that we will be spared uh, from that type of suffering uh, or that we'll have our best lives now free of pain and sorrow. I'm pretty sure only Joel promises that. God doesn't. And over the last couple of months, we... Uh, We've certainly seen and been affected by this type of suffering here at Crossway. Christian is lying in a hospital in Los Angeles, unimaginably damaged, and now permanently, physically impaired by a drunk driver. Consequences of sin. Lucy Martinez, who suffered and died under the ravages of cancer and Al grieving her loss, and certainly all of us as well grieving her loss. Others who deal with chronic and potentially life-threatening health issues, marriages that are struggling, children who die in the womb, and children who are lost because they reject the faith and walk away. Others suffer under the weight of struggling to provide for 
their families in a shaky economy or because of a, an unreasonable or a wicked boss. All of these things um, contribute to the suffering of the believer. And certainly there are those who have been mocked and mistreated, marginalized by family and friends, co-workers because of their faith in Christ. We live in a world that is characterized by suffering, and that suffering seems to be increasing exponentially. Well, that's what was uh, going on with the believers that Peter was writing to. They were suffering primarily because they were Christ followers, but undoubtedly they were also suffering uh, various types of suffering that we all experience as a result of living in this fallen world. Peter is writing to encourage them to strengthen their faith. He's encouraging them to stand firm and persevere in light of who they are in Christ and the sure hope that they have of a future reward and future glory. And he's encouraging them to live in such a way that shows their faith, live godly lives in order to demonstrate that hope and who they hope in. And Peter actually states his purpose in writing in chapter 5, verse 12. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the midst of suffering and persecution. Stand firm in the hope of their fully realized salvation in the hope of who they are in Christ by God's grace, stand firm in the grace of God through which they have been saved and made God's people, and stand firm in the promised inheritance. Stand firm. So, with that brief introduction, now let's look at the text. And this morning we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles paper, or digital. Follow along. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> we can organize this passage into four main points. And Mark told me that was meant it wasn't going to be a good Baptist sermon because you can only have three points in a Baptist sermon. But there's four here. I actually had five. I got rid of one of them. So, 
First is the people who are suffering. Second point is the promise in suffering. Third point is the protection in suffering. And finally, the purpose in the suffering. So Peter begins his letter to these believers by identifying himself by name and as an apostle, and not just any apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one of those who was with Christ during his earthly ministry. He was commanded to feed Christ's sheep, and he was sent by Christ. So this establishes his authority to deliver to the readers whatever will follow in his letter. And then he identifies the recipients of the letter, the people who are suffering. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And when Peter refers to these readers as those who are elect, he is identifying them as those people who have been chosen by God for salvation. Chosen by God to be his people. Chosen by God to be the recipients of all of the blessings, all of the glory that are shared by those who are in Christ. And throughout Scripture, that term elect is used repeatedly and almost exclusively to refer to true believers, the true people of God. Occasionally it refers to elect angels as well. But in the New Testament, it refers to those who have been born again, those who have trusted in Christ. Now, furthermore, the fact that these are the elect also means that this is solely a work of God. The elect contribute nothing to and are not inherently deserving of that choice. God's choice of who will receive salvation, of who will be his people is is free of any outside influence or any outside compulsion. It is a work of God's mercy and grace, which Peter will address later in the letter. And then Peter says that they are exiles, and other translations have this as um, strangers or aliens. And their status as exiles, as strangers in this world, is due to the fact that they are elect. They are exiles because they are God's people. They are separate and distinct from the people of this world. They are separate and distinct because the people of this world, their God is the God of this world. And their allegiance, these people's allegiance, is to the one true God rather than to sin and self, idols, or false gods. And their ethic is separate and distinct because it reflects and is governed by God's holiness and moral purity rather than pride, selfishness, lust, and greed. And they are separate and distinct because their true home is not this sin-cursed world, but heaven, the new heaven and the new earth in the presence of God, where Christ is preparing a place for them. And as a result, as God's people, they experience hatred and persecution because they are identified with the one true God. They are identified with Jesus Christ that the whole world truly does hate and is in active rebellion against. 
And then Peter goes on and further describes these exiles as exiles of the dispersion in this region of Asia Minor. And some commentators see this as a reference to uh, just Jewish believers of the 12 dispersed tribes, but most um, see this more likely as a symbolic reference to all believers scattered throughout various areas of the non-Christian world as well as this specific region of Asia Minor. And then Peter goes on to give further spiritual support to strengthen the faith of these exiles, these believers who are in the midst of trial and suffering. And he does that by further defining their status as the elect and relating that status to the work of the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are elect exiles, the people of God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, in in Scripture, God's foreknowledge is not referring to God's knowing what will occur in advance, but rather refers to his intimate knowledge of or intimate relationship with, knowing in a loving relationship and with favorable regard for his people. And it relates primarily to his preordained plans and purposes for his people. And the fact that Peter identifies God the Father gives further assurance to these believers in that, first of all, God is all-powerful, and able to fulfill all of his plans and purposes, and that he is their father. That is reassurance that he loves and cares for his people in the midst of their suffering. God is totally in control. Nothing catches him by surprise because he has declared the end from the beginning, and he is a loving father whose plans and purposes for his people are always motivated by and directed by his love for them, and they are always accomplished. And then the next phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit, This affirms that the Holy Spirit is the agent of the believer's sanctification, and there are two aspects to that sanctification. First of all, it refers to the fact that the elect are set apart as God's holy people, and that setting apart is the Spirit's work. And then, of course, it also refers to the Spirit's work in progressively conforming the elect to Christ-likeness. So that set-apart, positional holiness becomes an experiential reality. They're set-apart and declared holy, and then progressively they are made holy. Next statement, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, this also refers to the conversion of the believer, because coming to faith in Christ is never merely giving intellectual uh, assent or agreement to the facts of the gospel, but it involves obeying all that Christ commands. Matthew 28, 20 of the Great Commission, Jesus commands that in the making of disciples, they are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And John 3, 36 states, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So conversion and true faith will be characterized by obedience. 
And then um, the sprinkling with his blood, that's a reference to Exodus 24, 3 through 8, when Israel hears God's word, the law, through Moses, um, they agree to obey, and then the altar and the people are sprinkled with sacrificial blood, symbolizing their sealing and their entrance into the covenant. So Peter is referring to the believer's entrance into the new covenant through the shed blood of Christ and the spiritual cleansing and redemption of the believer through his sacrifice, through Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 further explains this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, these are the people who are suffering. Peter provides comfort and assurance in the midst of their trials and suffering by reminding them, first of all, that they are God's people and that God has saved them and is working in them. The elect have been chosen by God in his foreknowledge, setting his loving care on them, ordaining his plans and purposes for them. They are set apart by the Spirit as God's people, and they're being conformed to actual holiness, to Christ-likeness, obeying the gospel, and they have been redeemed, cleansed, and sealed into the new covenant by the shed blood of Christ. All of this Election, sanctification, redemption, they are all works of God, and they are not dependent on the individual believer. All a work of mercy and grace is true for these first century believers. It's true of us today as well. And then after Peter establishes their identity, he greets them with a prayer for grace and peace to be multiplied to them. And grace being the unmerited favor of God that results in the salvation of the elect, the power to kill sin, and the necessary strength to follow Christ. And peace is the peace with God that results from being forgiven and reconciled to God through Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. That's who the people are. Then Peter moves on to the next section of his letter where we find the promise in the suffering. This is verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The blessing or praise is offered to God because, because of what he has done for these believers, for all believers. He has caused the elect, he has caused his chosen people, these believers in Asia Minor, Minor, every one of us who are true believers in Christ, he has caused us to be born again. People who were once spiritually dead, separated from God, God has brought to life 
through the new birth. He did it. We did not do that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 elaborates on this, says, and you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this gracious, saving work of God is certainly cause to praise him, to praise him with joy and to praise him eternally. And Peter states, it's because of his great mercy. Believers don't deserve anything from God. What they deserve actually is God's righteous judgment, God's righteous wrath. We deserve an eternity in hell apart from God, spiritually dead, separated from God, separated from all the joys and blessings that are to be found in his presence. But because he is a God of great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, restored us to a right relationship with him. And as Peter states, we have been born again to a living hope, and that living hope is secured in the resurrection of Jesus. He's fully paid the price for our sin, fully satisfied God's justice. He's defeated sin, defeated death, defeated the devil, and he rose victorious over all of that. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that we too, who are in Christ, will also be resurrected in the last day. And Paul makes this clear in, uh, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. <clears throat> For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is what believers have been born again for. This is why believers can praise God. This is why these believers in Asia Minor who are suffering under trials, persecution, it's why they're not beaten down. It's why they're not defeated. They can look to the future, and we can look to the future. 
with a sure confidence and a sure hope because of the resurrection of Christ and the sure confidence and hope in their own resurrection and our own resurrection, the promise that they will spend and that we will spend an eternity in the presence of the Lord. And then Peter goes on to describe this future hope in greater detail as the believer's inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The meaning of inheritance was the portion a person would receive by lot or what a person would be given, the death of a um, predecessor. Basically, it's the same uh, way we understand inheritance today. Uh, For believers, whether those being addressed in Peter's uh, letter or those of us here at Crossway, that inheritance is our future reward for being in Christ and having persevered in faith to the end, regardless of what is experienced in this lifetime. Colossians 3.24 and Romans 8.15-17 through 17 state this. <clears throat> Colossians says, Uh, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then Romans, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Peter further describes the believer's inheritance as imperishable, which means uh, it can never decay, it can never die, it's eternal, it is unchanging, kept in heaven, where Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's Matthew 6.20. This inheritance is also undefiled. It's unstained, untainted, uncorrupted by any sin or evil. It has the very holy character of God himself. And it is unfading. It can never diminish in beauty or value. It will always be eternally beautiful, eternally valuable, and eternally unchanging. And it's kept in heaven, where Jesus says back in Matthew, it can never be stolen or destroyed. And Peter is making it emphatically clear that the believer's hope, the believer's inheritance, the believer's reward is absolutely certain, absolutely sure, and waiting absolutely secure in heaven. So, what is this future inheritance? Well, certainly it is eternal life. It's adoption into God's family its glorification and full conformity to Christ's likeness, but ultimately, it is life in the presence of God. Life in the presence of God is our reward, our inheritance. David sums up that thought in Psalm 16, 5 through 11. The Lord 
is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is our portion, and in his presence there is fullness of joy. Jeremiah also says this in Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And this promise of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven can also be included under the next point of encouragement, which is the believer's protection in suffering. Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, not only is the the believer's inheritance protected, kept safe and secure in heaven, but the individual believer, in the course of his daily life, however long that may be, and however fraught with many trials, difficulties, challenges to faith, and even tragedies, attacks by Satan and his servants, that individual believer is being guarded and protected. He is being kept safe by God's power, and certainly there is no greater power than God's, as he is all-powerful. And no one and nothing can successfully oppose our God and what he has determined will be. Daniel 4.35 makes that clear. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Ephesians 1.19 What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? God is guarding his people, the elect, those who have been born again, placing their faith in the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And again, this does not mean We know that this does not mean because of what Scripture says, but from what we've also observed, believers doesn't mean that believers will not suffer, okay? Doesn't mean that believers will not experience hardship, deprivation, persecution, or even death. We're all going to die pending the Lord's return. Scripture makes that clear. Believers will experience these things, and we know from our own experience and observation that Christians do suffer. But God is guarding his people spiritually. He is guarding them in what has eternal significance. He's guarding them for the salvation that is to be revealed in the end. And that guarding, Peter says, is through faith. Now, it's true that God has saved us 
<clears throat> but that salvation has been through faith in what Christ has accomplished. But even our faith is a work of God that we can take no credit for. <clears throat> Paul expresses this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. So even the faith that believers place in Christ is a work and a gift from God. It's not something that we're capable of generating on our own. And God, God guards us through the agency of faith, which he has given to us until our salvation is fully realized. And the true believer will continue in faith and obedience to the very end when that salvation is revealed. According to Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I want to emphasize again, as Peter does, that that inheritance, which in this passage is synonymous with salvation, that salvation is absolutely sure and secure because it's not dependent upon the individual to make it happen or to safeguard it. It is solely a gracious and merciful work of God. God saved us, and he won't unsave us. I think I've heard MacArthur say, if we could lose our salvation, we would, all of us, okay? But we can't. And the salvation of the believer is also multifaceted, okay? It has a past, present, and a future reality. In the past, we're saved from the guilt and penalty of sin by trusting in Christ. In the present, we're saved from the power of sin. We no longer have to sin, Okay, we can live in obedience to what Christ commands. We can live holy lives empowered by the Spirit. And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin in our lives. We will be glorified. We will be sinless. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be like him. So God chooses. He elects. He causes to be born again. He guards through our faith, which is a gift from him. So the believer and the believer's salvation is sure and secure because it is guarded by the power of God. And this is the protection uh, in suffering. And then Peter goes on to explain the purpose in suffering. Verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So just want to clarify, Peter is not saying that believers are to rejoice in the suffering itself. Okay? We're not masochists. Because suffering is real. Suffering is hard. It can be agonizingly painful. Suffering can be tragic, almost unbearable. It certainly can cause grief, and it can last an entire lifetime. But he does point out that it's temporary in light of eternity, and it's necessary. The believer 
is able to rejoice in the midst of suffering because of the profound good that it is accomplishing in the life of the individual. So what is the purpose in suffering that leads to rejoicing? Suffering that a believer experiences, whether that is in the form of persecution or simply being negatively affected by living in a sin-cursed world, suffering proves whether or not the professing believer has true and genuine faith. Suffering reveals the authenticity of faith, and it exposes false faith. Suffering will purify and strengthen true faith, causing the believer to depend more absolutely upon the grace and power of God, and it will destroy what was never authentic faith to begin with. Peter makes the comparison of the testing of faith through suffering with the process of how gold is purified. Extreme heat eliminates the impurities in gold, which increases its value. And Peter makes the point that our faith is much more valuable than gold, which is only temporary. It has no eternal value. It's perishable. And you may have heard a similar analogy. I've, I've heard this and used it a couple of times, how diamonds are also formed. Uh, the process of diamond formation begins with essentially a lump of coal, worthless lump of coal. And then over time and under extreme heat and pressure, the diamond is formed. And then that raw diamond is cut and polished, stripping away anything that's unnecessary to complete the process and present the diamond in its finished and valuable state. So just as with gold and diamonds, God uses trials, he uses hardship, he uses suffering to complete the process of sanctification, purifying us, strengthening our faith, further conforming us to the image of Christ and preparing us to be in his presence. And there are so many passages in Scripture that reinforce this truth. James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And Hebrews 12.11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the discipline in this passage is referring to the suffering that God puts us through for our good. And then 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that statement that Paul makes echoes Peter's words at the end of verse 7, where he says that our tested, purified, genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the last day, those 
whose faith has proven to be true and enduring will receive praise. When the Lord will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, but I want to hear that. And we will receive glory in that we will experience the glories of eternal life in God's presence, in our glorified state, changed into the likeness of the glorified Christ and honor. Now, that may be referring to the positions of responsibility and authority that will be granted to believers in the new heaven and new earth. But ultimately, all of that praise, all of that glory, all of that honor will be given back to God. Because it's only by His grace that we have faith at all. It's only by His grace that we are strengthened. It's only by His grace that we are able to endure to the end. So, the people who are suffering are the elect. Born again, people of God who have been saved by God's grace and mercy through the exercise of the faith that God has given, placing that faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Believers who are cleansed by the blood of Christ and are being sanctified by the Spirit, growing in obedience and Christ-likeness. That's these believers in Asia Minor, but it's all of us and all believers throughout the ages that have truly trusted in Christ And the promise to all of us is that we have an inheritance, a reward that is kept safe in heaven for each one of us, resurrected, sinless, glorified bodies, sinlessness, Christ-likeness, adoption, and eternal life in the presence of the risen and glorified Christ, our Lord and Savior, our God. And we are protected by the power of God. Even though we may suffer an entire lifetime, we may suffer to the point of death, our eternal salvation is secure because it is solely dependent upon God and nothing can successfully oppose or thwart his plans and purposes for us. No power of man, no power of hell. And we know that there is a good purpose in whatever we suffer because it refines us, it purifies us, it proves our faith. And it results in praise and honor and glory for us and ultimately to God because he is the one who has chosen. He has granted faith. He has caused us to be born again. He has sanctified us. He is giving us an inheritance. He protects us. He purifies us. He proves our faith. It's all a work of grace. In this, we should be comforted.
In this, we should be encouraged, strengthened in faith, and growing in joy while suffering. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are a merciful God, rich in mercy, and a gracious God. Thank you for graciously causing us to be born again, adopting us into your family, and giving us a hope and an inheritance that cannot be destroyed or defiled. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope, knowing that we too will be resurrected to live eternally in your presence. Pray that we would keep our minds uh, on those things that are eternal, those things that are unseen, regardless of what we experience in this life. And remember that whatever we suffer, it is a momentary light affliction compared to the glory that is being prepared for us. We thank you. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.